alcohol, aviation, and one pilot and his wife's story. You want to sit down and get ready to take some notes and be prepared to share this with other people. You're going to hear an amazing story by a couple who have gone to the depths of hell and back to be completely blunt. Um, and they are willing to come on and share their story about alcohol, aviation, being a pilot, drinking on overnights, um, waking up in an ambulance, uh, not remembering why, ultimately reaching out to a chief pilot and getting help. And the success story that goes along with that, along with alleviating some of the stigma and the fear that so many pilots have of reaching out and saying, hey, I need help. There's a loss of identity, ego, certainly a loss of your medical for a time and potentially a loss of your license. So there's a fear around that. But I know that after you listen to this show, you're going to be encouraged uh, by what's out there, the resources and the help that's available to you to get you through this little obstacle and do so successfully. There's some pitfalls that David went through personally, um, but he's there along with his story and, and some improvements in the HIMS program and other programs to help you navigate this part of your career if it's something you're struggling with successfully. And to the pilot wives who are out there, don't be afraid to reach out and uh, contact me, contact Chelsea. You can go to ask pilotwifepodcast.com to reach out for help, but stay tuned for this amazing, inspiring show. Wheels up. We're airborne. Welcome to the Pilot Wife and Aviation Podcast. I'm Jackie Almer, an aviation professional and pilot wife for over 30 years, and I'm your co-captain. I have some free resources to help you live your best aviation and high-achieving life at resources.pilotwifepodcast.com. Buckle up, stow your bags, and let's unpack the high-altitude life. So Chelsea and David Schaefer, welcome to the Pilot Wife Podcast, and thanks so much for agreeing to be here. Thank Hello, you. Thank you. Well, as you know, you guys have an amazing and inspirational story um, filled with all types of moments. And so what I'd really like to do is just start by asking you what your goal is in sharing your story. And you might each have an individual goal, because of course, um, with this type of situation, it would be easy to just kind of fade into the background. No one really needs to know, avoid potential judgment and stigma associated with that. So um, David, we'll start with you. What what uh, prompted you to say yes? Sure. Um, yes to the program. Um, there's no, a- No, yes to sharing. Oh, yes yeah. to sharing. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so when we first started doing, or about five and a half years ago, mm -hmm. so it was uh, May of, basically May yeah, of 2017. Sharing with- her yes on the podcast oh, okay but back when everything happened we just made a mutual uh, decision that we were going to try to help people and we weren't mm -hmm. going to hide anything so there was um it it would have been nicer just to hide because mm -hmm. there's a lot of embarrassment and stuff that happens when you start losing your job and your you know everything that comes with that and so um no one wants to tell people why you're not at work anymore because you have a problem you know so so we just made a decision that we were going to be open and honest about it and if uh, if we could just help one person along the way to not make the mistakes we had made, then we we're going to do it. So uh, ever since then, anytime anyone's asked us to do something, it's always just been an open, mm -hmm. like, absolutely, I will 
we'll talk about it. And like, you, you know, we talked about we're open books. There's really nothing off limits with us because you never know it's something that we might have gone through that might help someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and why not help them not make the same mistakes we made, you know? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. And for me, I honestly, I'm in a lot of Pilots Wives pages and it's just very evident that it's an issue, whether it's with the wives or whether it's with the husbands. And so um, it's, and it's kind of isolating. You think that because no one's talking about it. And so um, they think like they're the only ones that are experiencing this with their spouse or with themselves. And so um, I try to like not pass any judgment and comments, but just like, hey, like we're here. This is our situation um, and we're here for you. And so it's just, yeah, I think that it, it this lifestyle that we live is not normal. <laughs> so things um, can stir up pretty quick. And so um, we just want to be there for anyone. Um, not saying that we're professionals, but we do have experience. And so, um, yeah, that's my goal is to just um, share some of the feelings that everyone is feeling and going through just to like, yeah, just be there for people. Awesome. I love that. And I appreciate that. I definitely do. So let's kind of start then, David, with your background in aviation. Sure. Um, let's see. I don't have anyone in my, my older brother's a pilot. He was a, a Navy pilot. Um, and from a young age, I knew I wanted to fly. Uh, I went to school at Montana State. I started at Montana State, um, got my private pilot's license there. Uh, things happened. Um, I ended up uh, actually today, my son turns 13 today. So, um, and he's not me and Chelsea's, he's Chelsea's he's bonus, my bonus. <laughs> Um And so he turns 13 today. Um, and so I had him when I was 19. So that kind of changed things. Uh, life happened, a bunch of stuff happened. I kind of took a break uh, and kind of did stuff a little bit all over, but ended up coming back to Billings, Montana, which is where we're at now. And I finished at a 141 uh, school in Billings. So finished up everything there. Uh, I flew for a hospital here in Billings for a little while, um, so I was flying medevac for a little bit, um, and then I got the hours to go off to the airlines. Um, I ended up going to Mesa for a year, and I worked at Mesa for a year, and then I transferred to SkyWest and spent at SkyWest for six years. Yesterday was actually my sixth year with SkyWest, and then I just got hired with Delta and just waiting to start with them. That's awesome. Funny side story. Do you know Mesa's history? Um, they started in, uh, they were down in New Mexico in, uh, Farmington, New Mexico. And that's, I got my start at Air Midwest in Farmington, New Mexico. And I knew Larry and Janie Risley personally, the founders of Mesa airlines, we shared counter space. We helped each other load and unload airplanes and all of that. So I always love it when people have that story. And literally we had flights that would take off within like five minutes of each other. And it was a race. Cause I can't remember what they, they flew a beach craft and we had Metro liners. And so it was like always this like competition to see who could get to Albuquerque first. And then that like became the, and then they ultimately ended up buying out part of air Midwest. I was long gone and had gone on to American cause we were part of the Eagle program and blah, blah, blah. I worked in aviation as well as my pilot husband. So that's how, where we met. But anyway, um, it's just always funny with those old, old aviation stories. Yeah, no, I was a year and I was commuting from Billings to Houston. And so it's a two leg commute. Uh, and that's was, tough. Yeah, they, mm -hmm. I mean, they have Denver, Salt Lake, Minya, all these bases that are one stop hop. So I ended up coming over to SkyWest uh, shortly after. So mm -hmm. make it a little bit easier commute, not two legging it anymore. 
So very good. Okay, cool. So tell us then about your background story with alcohol and substance abuse. At what age did that start? And kind of paint the picture for us of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't. Um, I didn't drink or do anything uh, almost since I was 19. So my first drink was uh, like two weeks before I turned nine. Uh, yeah, two weeks before I turned 19. Yeah. Um, and it was a very fast spiral from there. Um, so I grew up, my parents made a deal with us when we were growing up that if we didn't drink, do drugs or have sex in high school, that they buy us whatever car we wanted on graduation day. Like, <laughs> so that was their deal was just, Hey, avoid, uh, you know, avoid the bad things and the temptations and we'll reward you. And I was like, sounds like a plan, you know? Uh, and so I did it, got my car on graduation. Uh, that was, you know, like June of 2000 and, uh, June, 2008. And by June 2011, I was in my first rehab um, center going for that. So had my first drink right before I turned 19, um, went off to college. And, you know, growing up, I, um, I didn't drink or do drugs or anything like that because I was going to get rewarded with a car. And then I had my first drink and I was like, well, that was great. And then, you know, smoked a little weed or whatever. And it was like, well, that was pretty great, too. And all of a sudden I didn't have the. Uh, reward system anymore well if you don't do that you're gonna, it was just like hey you can do whatever you want you're at college now and so uh kind of went into party phase um and then shortly after that ended up getting someone pregnant um which is my 13 year old you know today uh and so things spiraled pretty quickly um like i said i think it was june of 2000 and uh, june of 2011 i was in my first rehab center and i showed up to that uh, jaundice they said about 60 percent of my liver was just a black spot and the doctor I talked to was like how long have you been drinking for and I was like oh, like two and a half years he said you look like an 80 year old that's been drinking their whole life so um, I just kind of I, I went yeah to like from one extreme to the other zero to you know zero to 100 miles an hour just really quick and just about killed myself in the process of doing it so and what was it was it just um would you say it was just were there did you have anxiety issues? Did you have that type of stuff going on? Or was it just like all of a sudden the handcuffs are off, the reward system's gone, all my friends are partying, I'm in college or whatever. What what took you down? I mean, that is a that's a pretty quick yeah, yeah, it was a pretty quick journey. Spiral. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff. Um, you know, I um one of the big things was like I had uh, so found out we were having a, a kid and it was just kind of like, oh man, life's ruined. I don't know how I'm going to recover from this. Um, I thought that I had disappointed, like a, disappointing my dad was a big thing. So I had these reoccurring nightmares, which someone explained it to me one time, like, hey, that was, that whole nightmare was based off of like the one nightmare it had to do with snakes and me being in a field and my dad was yelling at me. And it was just this weird thing. And they, they kind of described it where they were like, yeah, you, you know, you let your dad down. And so that was, so I had these nightmares and to get like that to stop, I just would black out. So, uh, you know, the voices of like, oh, you're a disappointment or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, there was anxiety, there was stress, there was um, embarrassment, there was shame. I mean, there's everything that goes along with, with addiction was there. Uh, and it was just. And he grew up very like performance-based. And so like, just very, and he still is like a people pleaser and, you know, doesn't want to let anyone down. So it yeah. accompanied it very well. Well, it's hard to let go of that stuff from, the, I mean, it takes a lifetime of working on that once you've created those, you know, mindsets and beliefs and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was, it was, there was a lot of uh, everything going on at that point. And so it was, um, 
Yeah, I just, I just drank to, and you get to a certain point too, where um, I didn't want to drink. You just drink because, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're doing that. And the only thing that calms that down or the only thing that stops the sweating is to get more alcohol that you, your body gets to a certain point where um, alcohol is, is normal. And when you start taking that away, you start getting those withdrawals and stuff like that. And you get to a point where you just have to constantly have something in you. Otherwise you can't function. And so that's um, obviously where people start getting in trouble with drinking is when you get to that point. But um, so yeah, it gets to a certain point where you just, you don't even want to drink anymore. You just have to, you know, in order to maintain and in order to, to get by. So how much were you drinking? I mean, to give us like a perspective of the amount. Yeah. I was like a chemist at one point. Um, I had like a science to it. I didn't want to buy alcohol on a Sunday at one point because I didn't want to look like an alcoholic, you know, wanted to leave one day of the week. <laughs> Uh, but what I would do is I would buy, um, I would buy uh, six bottles of um, oh, the handles, what are those, like the 175s, uh, and I would buy six of those a week, and then uh, I would drink them down to, you know, about a quarter or whatever, and then on the seventh day on Sunday, I would fill all of them back into one, and then that would kind of fill it back up, and so it was my, like, little science experiment almost of, like, okay, well, I gotta leave that much because I gotta fill this back up, and I didn't want to buy alcohol on Sunday because that would look bad, you know. <laughs> as I'm sitting there drinking, uh, you know, 60, 70 ounces of, of uh, vodka, it's like, well, you didn't buy it on Sunday, so everything's fine, right? So, um, so that was, at one point, that was it. And then, I mean, it, it, it's changed, it changed over time. Um, when we got married, she's never actually seen me drink alcohol. She's seen me drink other things. Yeah. Um, that I was like, oh, well, you know, like mouthwash, for example, which I'm sure you'll get to at one point, but uh, I've never actually drank in front of Chelsea before. So she's never seen me drink. So when I would leave, I would go on my my trips and uh, I would drink in hotel rooms and stuff like that. And there was a big there was a big gap between his first time at treatment and his second. So yeah. There was a big gap that he was like in recovery, but the the characteristics were still there. Um, now looking back at it, like you can't just take the drink away. Um, you still carry characteristics, and he even he did jump into. Um, like sugar, like an addiction to sugar. And so, which I think is pretty common. Um, so he would like drink coffee excessively or soda, like fountain soda, um, mm -hmm. peanut M&Ms, like things were very excessive though. It was um, a lot. <laughs> and so it was the sugar addiction at that time and smoking. And so he jumped to something else, even though he wasn't drinking in our early married years yeah so, so it, it just kind of changed over time but it went from like that to yeah being on overnights to whatever i could get my hands on um you know uh whether it was uh alcohol from you know the first class carts that were like hey we got leftovers or um or you know just going down the street and being like oh okay you know the only thing that's here is gas station so I'll buy beer so it just kind of changed on overnights and it was just it was whatever i could get at that point so so Okay, I want to backtrack and then I do want to come back to the overnights because I think that's important, especially since we're talking about aviation and alcohol. Um, after your first rehab, how long before you relapsed? It was a couple of years. Uh, okay. So it was it was a it was a few years. Um, I don't know the exact um that's okay. I don't know. Four, it was five it was, years. It was probably four. Four or five years, yeah. Um, and then what ha what happened to cause that relapse? Um, there was a couple of times right before we got married that I that I remember drinking. Um, and then what happened was, um, you know, there was a couple of times where I drank and then I was like, okay, that was stupid. I'm not going to do that again. 
Uh, and so then I was sober again for a while, right as we first got married. But then what happened was uh, I went off to the airlines. Um, and right before I went to the airlines, I went on a ski trip with a couple of my friends and we kind of like, we're talking about life and they were like, and it wasn't them. It was me. Like, like, I don't know if I had a problem. I was just young. And they were like, well, there's no better time to try it. And like, let's just have a beer on the ski trip. And so I had a beer with, you know, my friends and whatnot. I came back from that and my friends, I think even texted me. I don't know the whole story, but it was like, Hey, I think I'm fine. You know, I think I'm normal. I think it might've just been a phase. And then I went to the airlines, uh, day one of being at Mesa, our in-doc instructor took like eight of us out to a brewery and everyone party. And then day two, the next instructor took us all out and we partied day three, everyone met by the pool and part, and it was like, oh, this is normal. Mm -hmm. And it just slowly went from like having a beer with some friends on a ski trip to, uh, hey, I need a bottle in my, my fridge when I get home from class because I'm starting to shake again, you know? And that happened really quick, like talking weeks at that point. So. so. So how did you manage it on trips in terms of, I mean, there's obviously the eight hour rule, which is probably a little too lenient in some regard to, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, um, uh, because I have experience and because I was able to be part of our hymns leadership, I think people would be surprised how many pilots are probably right now flying around with above the legal limit of stuff in their system. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a huge problem. Uh, and people just don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, how did I manage it? I would say I didn't. Um, you know, there really wasn't any way to manage it. It was uh, poor. Looking back on it, you know, I, I came in on a flight yesterday and the captain on the flight was was probably the most unprofessional thing I've ever seen. And looking back on it, that's kind of how I was, where it was like, man, I just wasn't, a you know, like wake up late because I was, uh, you know, drinking the night before. So I didn't have time to shave. So I wouldn't shave. And then I wouldn't iron my unit. And so just all of that stuff, it all, it, comes together and it just it just was completely unprofessional so I don't I wouldn't say I managed it I would say I just barely held on by a thread you know mm -hmm. um where it was just I, I barely kept it together um there was times where I would get off flights and be like okay you just have to wait till we land as soon as we land you get to the hotel and then you can go throw up you know and stuff like that where you're just like uh like okay just keep it in for a few more minutes and the, the problem with that is when you're focused on hey I'm just gonna not throw up but you're in weather and you're you you got a pretty you know serious job on the line so but your main focus is just not puking so then no one knows that you don't have a drinking problem. you know that's just an issue so mm -hmm. so i wouldn't say i managed i would say i just kind of barely held on by a thread and somehow didn't do anything stupid or get caught or kill anyone so mm -hmm. yeah. and he and he was on reserve the majority of the time i would say like i don't know that you flew like you do now um so you were sitting a lot yeah time. there was a lot of time of just sitting on reserve too where i was um which Honestly, it was, you know, you'd be like, well, two o'clock in the afternoon, they haven't called yet. I'll yeah. be fine. Um, and luckily they never did, but there was, yeah, I, which, um, again, just not managing it, just barely, barely holding on at that point. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So talk to us then about, um, the point where you had to fess up and let the airline know. Yeah, um, I woke up in an ambulance. I came to in an ambulance, and then I woke up about eight hours later or so in a hospital. And I, I, I came to in an ambulance, and I was just like, like I don't know where I am, but it was. Um, I remember waking up and seeing lights, and uh, someone was talking to me, an EMT or something like that. Uh, and I just remember thinking, like, okay, I can't hide it anymore. So this is the start of something new. Like it was kind of a refreshing experience, mm -hmm. uh, or not refreshing. It was. Um, 
you know, when you come to an ambulance, usually your first thought isn't like, like, okay, like I'm caught, you know, it was, and that was what my thought was, was just kind of like relief, like, okay, I don't have to hide anymore. Cause how am I going to hide this one? You know? Uh, and so then I woke up in, in the hospital, uh, that was on April 29th, I believe, or that was a, the morning of April 30th. Uh, they released me from the hospital. Um, I had, I was coming off of reserve and I was just going to commute home. Um, so and you were on a trip, you were on a layover. I was on a reserve trip when all this happened Okay. And I was back to the airport. This was at like nine o'clock at night or something like that. The flight was at like eight 39. Uh, and so I had finished my day earlier at like five. Uh, and so I had had a couple of drinks and I honestly, I don't even remember. Uh, I didn't think that I had hardly drank anything. Uh, and then ended up, uh, falling in the, uh, parking lot of the Denver airport. Um, and next thing I knew I was in an ambulance and woke up in the morning. And I think I just learned this for the first time a couple of months ago. I think they said my blood alcohol when I got to the airport was like 3.8 or 0.38, um, which I, like I said, I remember having a few drinks, but then I drove to the airport and I remember driving to the airport and I thought everything, I thought I was just perfectly fine. Uh, and next thing I knew I was, at, yeah, woke up to the hospital with, you know, a, a toxic limit of alcohol in my system, um, which was the, the sad part because that was just, you know, normal. Um, so that was, uh, that was on April, like 29th, April 30th. And then I got home the next day uh, or home that day. And I was like, I think I got to call and get help. And that's when I decided to make the phone call. Uh, was after that whole scenario. So. And you two were married at this point? Yes. So I was actually 37 weeks pregnant with our second. So his third, our second child. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he was supposed to be coming home and I was supposed to be going to pick him up from the airport that night and something new, like what he liked to do when he would start drinking was text and pick a fight with me. And then, um, that way I would give him a reason to continue the drinking. Like, oh, my wife is mad at me. Now there's somebody that hates me. So now I'm just going to drink myself in my sorrows. Um, that was pretty like standard for him. And so I kind of saw that coming. Um, and so I knew he wasn't going to be coming home that night, but around, yeah, like eight 30, which was about the time that his flight should have came in. I ended up getting a call from the, um, hospital saying like, Hey, we have your husband here. Um, he needs to sober up before we can run the majority of our tests because he's too drunk. Um, so he might have a brain bleed. We don't know. And I'm like, I'm 37 weeks pregnant and I have a toddler sleeping. Like what on earth am I supposed to do? Like, I can't physically get there. And so that was the moment that I was just like, okay, God, like this is yours. I can't do this anymore. Um, and so then when he came home the next day, um, I remember driving up to the airport and going past, we have two hospitals that are right next to each other. And I drove by them on the way to the airport and they, they're always picking up drunk homeless people along the side of this road. And here they were loading one of the drunk homeless people into the back of the ambulance. And all I could think was like, I, I can't judge that person. Cause that was my husband last night, you know, like, so like, I, who am I to sit there and judge that person, what they might be struggling with. And so went and picked him up and it wasn't even like a conversation when he got home, he just immediately went and called, um, because he knew something needed to be done. It wasn't even like a Hey, like, should I do this? Or, Hey, like, you know, it was just like immediate, like something needed to be done. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so at this point, did you know he was drinking? Did you know there was a problem? 
Yeah, I would say, okay, so, um, cause you know, people are going to ask like, yeah, yeah. Did you not know, like, sure. And again, at nothing ever happened when he was at home other than the one time. So nine months before almost exactly, um, I had found him drinking mouthwash and, um, that was kind of a, the thing, like a big thing. Um, but that was the only thing that happened when he was at home in front of me that I had to deal with. Um, over the nine months, there were different times that like he would, uh, go missing and not respond to texts and calls for a day at a time. Um, and so I would be like, calling hotels and I never knew what hotel, I mean, Peelin was at the one hotel, but I never knew what it was. And so, um, yeah, like I for sure knew that he was struggling, but I didn't know about addiction back then. Like even when we were dating and he told me he had gone to treatment once and that he was recovering alcoholic, like I didn't, I was so naive to what that looked like. Cause I feel like, and that's like nine or 10 years ago when we first started dating, I feel like addiction was like not talked about, but also it was very much like if that guy's an alcoholic, he's beating his wife type of thing, Mm. right? Like there was a a picture around addiction and alcoholism and that wasn't my husband or that wasn't my boyfriend, you know? And so like, I was super naive to what that looked like. And so when he told me that he had been to treatment, I was like, oh, well, are you like going to AA meetings? Like, how are you you know, taking care of yourself. And he was just like, Oh, I don't need that. And so I didn't know what to expect. I thought, Oh, well, he's been treatment. He's cut. Like he's good. He's good for life. No, that's not how that works. <laughs> so, um, so then like, as this time came, when I found him drinking the mouthwash, um, and it was a lot of mouthwash, um, that was, that was an eye opener to like, Hey, this is, this is quite a doozy. And then we found out we were pregnant, like literally the next day (laughs) I was like, Oh gosh. Okay. (laughs) What are we getting ourselves into? So, and then, yeah, we, he kind of struggled over the next nine months, but mostly away from home. Like I didn't really experience anything. And in that nine months, we were, um, under a lot of stress just with his job and and training and all that kind of stuff. But then I was also managing a dental office and we were planning on franchising, um, a, a retail store. And so there was just a lot of stress in that time. And then here we were going to have another baby on top of everything. So, um, you know, when the last straw hit, that was kind of like, okay, like things have got to give, like, we just got to like figure this out. So. Yeah. David, did you grow up with alcoholism at all in your family? No, so my dad is actually, my parents, um, like my dad, he runs a business and he would get like bottles of wine and stuff for Christmas and he would never bring them in the house. Like he would like discard them because alcohol was just like, hey, we just don't do that in our house. Um, Turns out my dad was an alcoholic and he'd been sober for like 25 years or something like that uh, when I was growing up. Um, And then when all this happened, he, him and my mom started kind of drinking again. And then my dad actually ended up going to rehab a few years back as well. So he's actually recovering alcoholic as well. Um, so, uh, no, growing up, nothing. It was, it was like, uh, it was like, Hey, we just don't do that. You know, bottles of wine and stuff like that. They just wouldn't even come in the house, um, if he was offered them and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, nothing, absolutely nothing in our, our house. 
So Chelsea, how about you? What's your family history and what is your own personal history with um, alcohol? So my parent, it wasn't, sorry, we got a little one that woke up far too soon. <laughs> no worries. He was um, so my parents didn't really like, it was casual, um, growing up. And then when I became of age, I, um, definitely did my partying phase. Um, the summer that I met David, I was kind of in my phase and season and, um, but nothing, nothing like struggling, I would say, um, nor my parents, nothing, no, um, history of addiction or anything like that. Um, and now I, I do not drink. Um, it's been since I was pregnant with that little one. So probably about three years ago. Um, and even before that, it was very casual. So, um, but, you know, out of support and, you know, understanding our household and, you know, some, you know, family generational sins and backgrounds, um, you know, we're, we're just going to raise our children in understanding what it is, what addiction is, but also alcohol and not out of fear, but, um, just understanding it. So, yeah. Isn't it interesting that it's, it's too bad that we aren't more open about it. I mean, I'm just reflecting on David's experience. You know, what if his dad, I mean, there's a million, what if she can't look back, but what if his dad had been willing to not just bribe him with yeah. the car and that whole thing, but say, look, I, let, let me just tell you my story, you know, and here's the thing and what it can do. And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So once you became aware that he was drinking again and on trips, mm -hmm. not drinking at home, but drinking on trips, what was your thought process around that? Were you concerned? Were you on Google looking for answers? What was going to, and I know you had a lot going on. So <laughs> none of that's like any kind of, well, you should have been doing this. I don't mean it like that at all. It's always easy to Monday morning quarterback anything, but until you're living something, you don't know. Um, I think it, it was constantly me reaching out, reaching out to his parents because he just has a really close relationship with his parents. And so I was always like, Hey, have you heard from David today? Um, like texting him or calling him, Hey, I haven't heard from David today. Um, but he was also living with a fellow pilot in his basement, um, because crush pads were absurd. I'm sure they mm -hmm. still are. <laughs> we just have experience changed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he would, this fellow would text me, um, or call me often and say like, Hey, Dave, I haven't heard from David today. Hey, David, this, whatever. And so there were a handful of, um, guys that he had done training with that I had met, um, because one time when he went missing, I say missing, he wasn't like fully missing, but I, I took my toddler at the time and we went to Arizona um, when he was in training for a week, um, just to kind of like, hopefully diffuse it a little bit. And we met with a pastor down there that we were just like, Hey, we have to like seek some type of guidance. And so, um, so there were like different steps that we did take, but honestly, like, I didn't know what to do. I had no clue what to do. And I don't know like how some people set their boundaries um, because that's like the number one thing. And so I am super, super grateful for the hymns program because that was his boundaries. It took it all off of me. It was like, he had to answer to his company and hymns program at that time. Um, and so, yeah, there, I mean, it was, 
it was one of those things that I was just kind of like out of sight, out of mind, even though I was like crying and struggling most nights when he would just like peace out, you know? Um, yeah. Well, it's hard when you're juggling a lot, it's easy to compartmentalize. Um, and you got to deal with the fire that's right in front of you. Right. 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 Yeah. Well, and I would, I would always be like, Hey, you need to get into meetings. Hey, you need to do this. But in reality, now that we're, you know, flip side, however many years, six years, five years, um, you know, meetings are, aren't necessarily for everyone. You have to figure out what is for you and what you are going to do. And so me just saying, Hey, are you going to get to meetings that, that was just like a taking it off of me, which, yeah, I don't know. And I didn't want to be like a nagging wife either. I'm like, how do I support him in this, but also like gain control of our marriage and gain control of the situation. So well, I think it's one of those things too. And just like, um, what uh, I'm trying, David, you shared something that I was going to tag onto that, but, um, everybody does have to find their own way and what works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. Some people, AA is not right for them. M- many people have used that and it's been amazing, but some people it doesn't fit for. And, and, oh, I know. I mean, I think actually you said it, Chelsea, it's like, it's, we have one picture. It's like, you're either an alcoholic or a non-alcoholic. And if you're an alcoholic, it means that you said, you know, like you beat your wife and you're down and out and you're going to lose your job and you're this. And, you know, there's this whole persona that for so long we've had that goes along with that. And it's kind of the same with AA. And now a lot now, as we advance, we're realizing that's not the only solution. There are other tools and resources. And I'm guessing that's kind of where you went with the HIMSS program. So We'll kind of move into that with, all right, you got home and said, I got to get help. What did that look like? You had to make a phone call. Yeah, I called my chief pilot and said, hey, here's what's going on. And they said, like, hey, thank you so much for calling us. Um, they got me in touch with um, with the hymns. Uh, sorry, we got we got cocoa melon and chocolate chip cookies trying to distract him. <laughs> it's but, all good. Uh, yeah, so called the chief pilot's office. They got me in touch with um, with the guy that was running our hymn program at the time. And within about an hour, I'd actually gotten about six phone calls from like six different chief pilots. So there must be like a, you know, when, when this happens, they must just say, hey, uh, like, hey, we got someone coming into the program or something. But they all called and just said, thank you. So they were all like, hey, thank you for choosing to come into the program. Uh, because it, you know, um, one plane crash can take a company down. So, you know, a big company, um, that's all it takes. And so for someone to just call and say, hey, I got a problem, I need to get some help is a lot better than piling up an airplane. And, you know, then the people having to deal with the backlash of, of that, uh, you know, drunk pilot kills how many people, uh, companies just don't recover from that. So they all called and said, hey, thank you so much for, um, for being willing to get help. At the time, uh, the HIMSS program is not talked about. So, um, they talk about it usually in in-doc classes. They'll usually take about 30 seconds to be like, hey, by the way, if you ever find yourself in trouble with drinking or drugs, there's a HIMSS program, here's a phone number. Uh, okay, let's keep going, right? And so it's not talked about um, at, uh, at most companies that, that I know of. So that was kind of one of the things we tried to focus on when I was 
uh, in leadership with the HIMSS program. But um, I thought it was going to be about a six week ordeal. They'd just take me off for about six weeks mm -hmm. and then I'd go back to work. And um, But it was uh, 987 days later is when I finally went back to work. So it was not a six week process. It ended up being a very long process uh, because I just didn't know anything about it. Uh, I mean, it ended up saving uh, my life, my job, my career, my marriage, my family. So very grateful for the the program being there um, but it was definitely not what I thought it was because it no one really knows what it is you know even if you say hymns program now to pilots they go oh what's that and you have to explain it to them you know even though it's a, a program designed for us so uh, there's just not a lot of stuff that's known about it so and every case is different too mm -hmm. um you know his case we seem to find every <laughs> hole in the system <laughs> possible and so it did prolong um the process for us but you know plenty of guys that you worked with um have a have a different experience yeah it's usually you're usually you're out for about a year maybe 14 months somewhere in there is kind of normal but it took me about three years to get back so um yeah it was definitely not the six weeks that we had thought but there was a lot of support around it when i did call like i said within about an hour i had gotten phone calls from multiple chief pilots and flight ops supervisors and assistant chief pilots saying hey thank you for for coming in just let us know if you need anything and uh you know um so there was a lot of support behind it and there was a lot of unknown of what it looked like uh, i just knew i needed to get help so uh made the call not really knowing what was going to happen so so once you make that call and it starts the process, I, I believe I understand this correctly, and I may not, so please jump in. It's an immediate loss of license. So not necessarily loss of license, it's a loss of the, the medical certificate. So you, you okay. get that phone call surrenders your medical certificate. And then, yeah, I mean, uh, your medical certificate is really what validates your pilot's license, right? right. If you have medical, you can fly. So as soon as you no longer have that medical, then you no longer fly. So yeah, with the the second I made that phone call, they pulled me off the schedule, um, and that was it. I was done at that point. So, and then do they turn you over, for lack of a better word, um, to this program? Did they? Is it outsourced? Do you go to a facility? Walk yeah, us so, through what that looked like. Yeah, it's uh, it's a whole process. So, um, yeah, they turned me over. The chief pilots basically said, thank you. We're going to pull you off the schedule. Uh, you're still an employee. Like, I was still, uh, I was never fired. I was never terminated. I was always an employee of SkyWest. I still, the whole three years I was off, I gained seniority. Uh, everything continued like it normally would. Um, but what they did was they turned me over to the, uh, the HIMS chairman of our company and he said here's what I want you to do and they basically said here's what, how this is going to work uh, they asked me if I could be on a flight it's a very immediate thing so um, and it's that's all just because it all has to do with the FAA like they don't want people like dipping their toe in and going oh you know what never mind I'm fine you know it's hey if you're gonna get help you're gonna get help you're going you're doing it now and it looks better to the FAA too to be like hey I called and the next day I was in rehab versus I called and then uh, it took like six or eight weeks to figure out what I was going to do. You know, uh, that doesn't really look that good. So he said, hey, can you be on a flight tomorrow morning uh, to, to go to rehab? And I said, well, my wife just started having contractions. Uh, what are the odds that I could, you know, not do that? And he was like, uh, not <laughs> Wait great. A Wait a week. Yeah. And so I called them every day and I gave them updates on a daily basis of where she was at. So she started having contractions um, and they said, um, they said, we will let you stay and see your kid be born and then you're off to treatment. So 
uh, I don't know the date that I called her uh, or that like if it was a Monday or whatever, but she had the baby on a Saturday night, I believe. And on Monday morning at 5.30 in the morning, I was at the airport heading to work. So, you know, our, our uh, Finn wasn't even 48 hours old when I left to go to, to rehab. So uh, the very first process in the program is you go to inpatient treatment for 38 or 30 days, 28 days. So is what they consider it's 30. So uh, four weeks of inpatient treatment is where the whole HIMSS program starts. Mm -hmm. And that's the beginning of it. So are these all airline pilots in no, the HIMSS? Uh, no. Or it's integrated well, hymns in itself is specific to airline the treatment pilots. yes but not the treatment facility no now pilots as you know have contracts for everything right so right uh, there's, you know you name it there's contracts for pilots because uh apparently yeah anyways um we send our pilots at skywest to two specific places you don't have to go to one that's actually hymns specific um the problem is is that uh the faa with paperwork and stuff like that. Um, certain therapists and because, you know, when you go to treatment, you're dealing with therapists and um, I don't even, you know, there's all sorts of letters of the alphabet there, LCSWs and all these people that are all writing these reports that eventually go to the FAA. Well, if they accidentally say something in their report that they're not supposed to, the FAA could look at that and go, oh, well, that actually looks like you meant this and that's a disqualifying thing. There goes your medical, you're never flying again, right? So there's hymns specific trained people all over the country for AMEs, which are the doctors, um, or psychologists, uh, psychotherapists, uh, neuropsychologists. They're all hymns trained in like, hey, be careful with what your reports say because that could reflect on if this guy ever flies again or not. So mm -hmm. you're not required to go to treatment at one of these places, but we always highly recommended that they went to one of two places for us specifically at SkyWest, mainly because they took our insurance. Uh, and uh, because the, the people there were trained with pilots. Mm -hmm. So depending on the company, uh, like American, for example, sends all their pilots to one specific place. Uh, Delta sends them all to one specific place. So they usually have, uh, hey, if, if you get in trouble at this company and you come into the HIMSS program, you're gonna go to this rehab facility. Uh, at SkyWest, we didn't have that. They just kind of told me, they said, hey, you're, you're going to go to one of these two places, uh, or you can go to one of your choice, but here's the downfalls to that. So you kind of can pick, but at the same time, you also have to be very careful with where you end up going and what you someone ends up writing to the FAA and, and whatnot. You know, my, I think my doctor, my uh, treatment records for 30 days, there was like 580 pages. And so the FAA can come through all those. So if one person says one thing and documents something wrong, you know, that could be the, uh, the end, of, end of your medical at that point. So that's where they, you kind of got to be careful with picking and choosing where you go. But 580 you know, pages for 30 days? Yeah, everyone writes yeah. reports. So even like the, you know, the, the people that are at the, the little desk watching everyone sleep, or not watching them sleep, but like watching the hallway <laughs> where everyone, everyone sleeps. Like you come out of your room at, three o'clock in the morning to go get some fresh air that's documented you know mm -hmm. everything's documented hey david came out of his room at three o'clock in the morning to if go i get would fresh call air him or anything yeah so everything you do is is uh, documented for the whole time you're there mm -hmm. yeah wow so you went through the 30 days and then 30 days you come home and then your next step is 90 and 90 so 90 90 meetings 90 days um so you go to a meeting a day for for 90 days um are these AA meetings? Are they specific for hymns? It can be anything. So it can okay. be 
because some pilots are drug problems, some pilots are alcohol. So you can go to like uh, anything A. So NA, CA, AA, basically just go to a meeting, something that's helping you recover. Um, they can be celebrate recovery. They can be par, you know, there's all sorts of different stuff nowadays. So it doesn't necessarily have to be AA. It just is, you need to be at a meeting with people who are in recovery. So you do that for three months. Um, at the end of that three months, you meet with your hymns specific AME at this point. That's the doctor specific to. Yeah. And then from there, they make a game plan of what's going to happen. Your next step after that is you go and get a, uh, it's called a PMP test. So it's, it's basically a test with a neuropsychologist and a psych, I don't know, there's so many words, uh, a neuropsych test and a psychologist test basically. So it's like a two day test. And they test to make sure you don't have like wet brain or your brain is still functioning. All this stuff is going on. And that's, uh, yeah, that comes after you in your 90 and 90 and you meet with your AME for the first time. Then you move on to that step mm -hmm. to go get that report uh, gathered for the FAA. So what's the soonest you could recover your medical and begin flying again? Some, like uh, some of the major airlines, Delta, United, American probably, um, some of their pilots are back within like six or seven months, but it's all because they use internal stuff. So they, you know, you come back from treatment, you do 9090, and on your 91st day, you're at your AME. And the week after that, he sends you to this specific doctor, which then sends you to this specific doctor. Everything goes back to them. And it gets, and so it's just very structured. Um, with SkyWest, when I came in, it was, it was very like, hey, pick and choose. Like, who do you want to go see for a doctor? You just got like a list of, yeah, so there's a there's about a hundred hymns AMEs across the country, um, and really, uh, I don't know specific percentage wise, but not all of them are good um, because not all of them deal with this on a regular basis. The doctor I see now is absolutely fantastic, and he golfs with the chief medical examiner in FA. So he's you know he it's hit the one that I have now is is fantastic because he's in the program every day. He's communicating with these people. The doctor that I ended up choosing was right down the street from my parents. And I was like, well, that would work great because when I need to go see him, I'll just go to their house and then I'll go down the street and see him. And then I, you know, I don't have to commute across the country. Uh, and that ended up being a bad decision. Um, he had never done a first class. He was a hymns AME basically for third class guys that mm -hmm. want to still fly their Piper Cub and shoot coyotes on their ranch. Mm -hmm. uh, but they just need to maintain that third class and that there's not a lot involved in that. I was his first hymns, uh, first class medical that he had ever done. And he didn't really know anything. So there was a lot of time sitting around waiting because he would send in something and FA would go, that's not what we need. And so they'd come back and, you know, these aren't just like instant things either. This is, you send something to the FA and you wait three or four months yeah. and then you hear back from them. And then you start doing something else again. And then by the time you send it in, you wait another three or four months. So it's, it's a very long process, which is one of the things that they're trying to cut down on right now is the amount of time that things are just sitting around. Uh, and it's, it's down to two weeks now because they're doing everything electronically. But back then they were. And yeah. so it was a lot of downtime just sitting, waiting. Mm -hmm. So yeah. is this part of the reason or the reason why was yours almost a three-year process? Um, yeah, there was a lot of it just was paperwork issues. Um, so the doctor that I was seeing would say, Hey, um, you don't need to go. For example, he told me I didn't need to do the PMP test. Um, and you do. And he was like, no, that's not needed. And so he sent all my application and everything into the FAA. Well, four months later, they, they come back and they say, Hey, where's your test? And you're like, okay, well, you told me I didn't need it. And then the doctor would go, Oh, okay, we'll go do one of those tests. Well, those tests aren't just like, Hey, you don't go see someone just tomorrow. You know, I had to go to see the 
specific doctor. And it was like a three month wait or something. It was yeah. like a very long wait. So you, you get into these doctors and then you, um, you wait and then you go do the test and then you wait for the test results to come back. And then that comes back to your doctor and then you start the whole process over again. But then at that time, our doctor had retired unbeknownst to us. Yeah. So we, <laughs> so, I have, I had a lot of doctor issues and I don't want to blame my doctor saying everything was his fault. Cause I'm the reason that I was there cold, in the first place. But... Right. So it was, uh, it's my fault that I'm in the program uh, or not my fault necessarily, but my actions got me there. So I can't say like, Hey, this doctor is at fault, but I did have a bad doctor and he, he gave me a lot of bad information. He had me do stuff. Um, for example, one time he forgot to do the actual physical portion of my FA medical. So he sent me to a doctor here in Billings and he said, Hey, just go get the, you know, go get your eyes and everything checked out with that doctor. Well, the FAA looked at that. They call it doctor shopping where they come back and they go, well, why are you going to a different doctor? And, uh, and it, I was told by my doctor to go do that. And the FAA came back and said, all right, we don't like that. We're going to put you on probation for six mm -hmm. months. So, you know, you're just doing, you're at the, yeah. the mercy of, of these doctors because when you're in the program, you're, you know, you're, you're a trouble pilot, essentially. Like you're, you're a trouble, trouble kid. So no one believes you. They only ever take what the doctor says for, for granted. So you doctor says to do something you do it and if he doesn't like it it's you that gets penalized not the doctor mm -hmm. so um we just had lots of little hiccups like that where it was like okay you're on probation for six months and then once everything finally came together and i was like okay i got my test done i have all the results i have everything i called my doctor and they were like well he's retired and i was like well when is he retiring and they were like like tomorrow like we're cleaning out his office now uh but because of all the other stuff that had happened, I couldn't just switch doctors. That's one of the things in the program, you can't just bounce from doctor to doctor. It's very specific. You will see this doctor, he will be your doctor until release. Um, and we spent like three months just trying to get released from this doctor because he wouldn't answer any phone calls or anything. Uh, and so then we just sat around waiting for that because the FAA had already thought I was doctor shopping at this point. And so uh, I couldn't just go switch doctors. So um, there was just a lot of stuff with mine, which is kind of one of the reasons, like I said, that we're. Uh, like, hey, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way and we've, we've done things well that just have backfired. So if we're open and honest with people, maybe we can help someone and maybe I can help a pilot out by yeah. going, hey, it's totally worth commuting across the country to see yeah. a good doctor as opposed to just going to the guy down the street because yes. he's convenient. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we were open and want to talk about it is we don't have people go through the same stuff that we did, you know, even though really a lot of it, like I said, wasn't necessarily our fault. Um, again, it was my actions that got me there. So I can't say, oh, it's this guy's fault, but, um, like little things like that, Hey, uh, fly to LA to get a good doctor versus, you know, going down the street in Jonesboro, Arkansas or whatever, um, to, to help kind of help the process out. So, mm -hmm. yeah, because I, you know, I, I would hate for anybody to listen to this and think, oh, what I, I can't even, I'm not even going to do this. I'm not going to go down this road. It's crazy. Um, so, and I know this is kind of, I don't want to call anyone out, but what in your experience, and I know you went and took on a leadership role, we'll get to that, but do you think that it's also kind of luck of the draw of the FAA person, whether they're going to be working with you and looking at the paperwork and saying, oh, wow, like, let's not just check boxes here. This is a real live human being with the career on the line and all of this. Um, looks like something's wrong here. Could I reach back across and help? Or is it just? It's, um, you know, with the HIMSS program, everything funnels through a very few specific people. Uh, and so I was in uh, Washington, D.C. in April with all of the heads of the FAA, um, the HIMSS aeromedical exam, all these, all these people were there. 
And it was very interesting seeing how everything works um, because it was the first time getting to experience like uh, all of these people together in one room. And you're like, oh, I've seen that person's name on all these nasty letters that they send me, but there they are and they're fantastic, right? And they, um, the big thing is they're, they're there and they wanna help, um, but it's a government run program. And so things aren't efficient. And so the new head and so we of the, saw the delays just with the government program. And that's one of the things they're yeah. trying to work on now is they're doing everything electronically to where there's a two week turnaround and not a 90 day turnaround or 60 day turnaround from from paperwork, because that was one of the big issues was your paperwork would go to, say, Oklahoma City and it would sit there for three months before someone put that piece of paper that needed to then go to Washington, D.C. in the mail. Yeah. So things just sit there for for 90 days, you know. Um, and that's one of the things they're trying to work on now is, hey, let's get a two week turnaround instead of a 60 or 90 day turnaround, because that, you know, um, that can cause problems, too. You know, uh, when you submit your initial package off to the FAA, like you're reapplying and you're and then you just sit there and you wait. And there's a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety that comes with that. So now you have these like these pilots that are, you know, in this very specific program trying to get help. And now you put all this stress on them and you make them wait for 90 days to hear back if they're even going to get it. And then it's uh, and so they're they're trying to cut back on that stuff because they're like, we get it. We know that there's a lot of stress involved in that. So let's try to make it a little more uh, efficient. And that's what they're working on now. So but yeah, there there's very few people that it goes through when it's him specific. Um, and there's actually one doctor that reviews every single case. Uh, and he is the final decision maker of, hey, here's what's going to happen. So everything goes off to the FAA and then it goes to different, a couple of different people and they kind of review everything. And once they say, okay, everything's here, I think like it's ready to go. It then goes off to this one specific doctor and he reads the final packet and he, you know, along with um, the AMEs and the other people that have agreed, like, okay, it's time to give them medical. He then makes that decision. Uh, so it all eventually flows through just one guy in Washington, DC. So, yeah. Wow. Interesting. So what led you into taking, you mentioned you had taken on a leadership role within HIMSS. What, tell us about that, what that looked like and why? Yeah, I was the, um, so at SkyWest, we have um, one chairman of the program and then one vice chairman. So I was the vice chairman of the program. Um, uh, really what it was, was there was a lot of guys in uh, the SkyWest program um, and gals specifically that, uh, that were having problems with doctors. Um, yeah, there was one guy that had a very similar situation to me that took him almost three years to get back because his doctor, you know, this guy was doing everything he was supposed to be doing, but his doctor just kept screwing up. And it's, you know, at this point, um, you know, it's, it's the pilot's livelihood on the line, not the doctor. The doctor's making lots of money off of all this stuff. Um, uh, but these pilots are, you know, for us specifically, we were like, we had to sell our house, we had to sell our cars, we had to move into my parents' basement. Mm -hmm. um, we were just barely scraping by it. And we didn't, at times we didn't even know how we were gonna put food on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and so um, part of going into the leadership role was I didn't want guys to have to sit around for three years like I did. And I wanted to be able to help. And I also wanted to, um, I wanted people, our pilots at SkyWest, it's a growing company, right? We got. Uh, 5,000 pilots, something like that. At one point, we had almost 6,000 pilots. So uh, there's a lot of people out there and there's a good chance, you know, our program has 60, 70 people in it, maybe. Uh, there's a good chance it should be about four or five times that size, but people don't know the program exists. And so I just wanted to uh, spread awareness, spread awareness, like mental health. Yeah. Um, let pilots know that there was help. Um, mm -hmm. And our program up until that point hadn't um, 
hadn't really done that. So there really just wasn't a lot of like information. Like I said, I thought it was like six week process. Um, and so that was kind of one of my goals was to get uh, the word out there and then to also the guys that were coming in to kind of help walk them through the process and help kind of not necessarily speed things up, but like, hey, avoid doing these things because I've done them before and it's going to hurt you. Yeah. So there was times like- Because it is beneficial and rewarding. We've seen, you know, the reward of it. Um, ours just unfortunately took a little bit more time, but um, thankfully that's not like most cases. So yeah. There's been times like, um, there's one guy I can think of specifically, um, me and Chelsea were driving down to Tucson to get away and go have like a little date. And I think I spent most of the drive on the phone with this guy, just telling him like, hey, here's how it's gonna go. Here's what's gonna happen. Um, he's probably the quickest pilot we've ever seen get back at SkyWest, but like, you know, taking the time to just talk to him to say, hey, you know, um, here's the process and here's how you can not necessarily expedite it, but here's how you can be prepared and ahead of the game. So for example, 90-90, yeah. uh, you finish your 90 meetings in 90 days, and then you go meet with your AME. Well, if you call your AME on day 90, he's probably not gonna have an opening for the next two or three months. Yeah. But hey, on day one of being out of rehab, if you call that doctor and say, hey, on this date, I will have met my 90-90, what do you have for appointments? And now the next day, and so just little things like that of just saying, hey, like, here's how you can be a part of the process and here's how you can like help yourself out. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of what I tried to do when I was, I was in that role, mm -hmm. so. Well, good for you. And thank you for that. Really. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that I think everything happens for a reason, even when it seems like the biggest, you've already had a challenge and then a challenge and then a challenge and then another one. And now looking back, you know, I always, it's aviation. I use terms, right? It's like the view from 40,000 feet. You can't see it at the time, but when you're up there, you can look down and say, all right, maybe this happened to me so that I can be an advocate and helpful to other people and, and over fair. time it becomes a blip in time I know it doesn't feel like that when you're going through anything but well over the time that we were waiting um he was instructing as well and he started his own painting business so he had a lot of things but we had a lot of going on but we just tried to keep perspective of like we're firm believers and so we were like this is happening for a reason like god knows and we will you know 10 years 20 years down the road we're going to look back at this and see what god's purpose was in all of this even though it's you know painstaking at the moment but um we knew that like it was hard don't get me wrong like there were days that we just both wanted to cry and kind of sunk into little holes but for the majority of it I, that we just like clung to each other and clung to god and just said like okay there's reason there's purpose um so absolutely there's purpose in everything so mm -hmm. so let's talk about aviation and the alcohol culture and and i appreciate that you already brought up probably four to five times the number of people need this than are in the program so how do we i mean there's so many things like it's one of those professions that you lose your medical, which costs you your license for a time, or at least your ability. I mean, there's so many things that go with it. How do we, um, how do we overcome this silent epidemic because of the stigma and the loss of so many things? How, how do we collectively work as a community to change that? Yeah, I think for like, um, speaking for like pilots specifically, there's a lot of fear that um, mental wellness or mental, um, any type of mental health issues is going to cause a, a grounding, right? So you're going to be grounded. Uh, and anytime you're grounded, then 
it, there's always the fear of, okay, well, am I ever going to fly again? Right. So mm-hmm. uh, the pilots, that's why pilots don't like, you know, have to go to their AME once a year, because that might be where they find, you know, a little heart, something, and all of a sudden you don't fly, you know? So pilots are just very peculiar. And that, that one little medical certificate is our, is kind of our livelihood. And I think pilots, uh, you know, for me specifically at the beginning of it too, there's a lot of identity tied up in, in being a pilot. Um, it's a very small group of people that are pilots. You know, there's not a lot of airline pilots out there, right? So uh, it's a very small group and we all share that, that kind of unique, um, the, the job. It's a unique job. It's something, uh, something that we do that not a lot of people get to see or be a part of. And, uh, and so to lose that is, is a big thing for a pilot. So knowing like, hey, if I were to lose my job, if you ask any pilot, hey, if you lost your job, what would you do? Most of them probably laugh and go, I, what would I do? I don't know. You know, like, what do you do after that? Um, and so, uh, getting over that stigma of that mental where mental health is going to cause you to never fly again, uh, I think it's probably the first step, um, specifically for pilots. And then, uh, surprisingly, there's a lot of, you know, our biggest pushback when I was, uh, trying to, uh, help with the hymns leadership stuff, our biggest pushback was actually from our pilot union. Uh, Skybus has their own pilot union. Um, Alpha carriers, a little bit different because they're all under that that banner of Alpha, but we have, Skybus has our own uh, pilot union. And surprisingly, the, the biggest pushback that we got was from the pilot union of like, because we'd be like, hey, we want to like send out an email to all the pilots. And they'd be like, well, no, you can't because this has to, we have to go verify this and this. And, this. and it's like, we just want to let people know that that there's help out there and they'd be like well uh you can't do that right now because in the bylaws it says that you have to bubble and it's like like we're just trying to get awareness out there that's all we're trying to do right i worked in the training department for about four years so uh hey can we take five minutes of in-doc class and just talk about it and but you have to be very careful because there's contracts for everything right so uh what can be discussed in training or what are pilots what can they be exposed to what you know there's just all this stuff involved where it's like it's legal issues that are stupid that you're like hey, we're trying to save lives here we're not trying to uh, you know we're not trying to indoctrinate people into a cult we're just trying to tell them hey when the struggles come and there's a good chance they're probably going to come there's help and there was a lot of pushback for that so um but from a pilot standpoint that's what i can think of just getting over that um that stigma of hey you're you're never going to fly again that's not not the case and that's actually one of the things the FAA talked to us about was uh, mental health is what they're going to be focused on uh, a lot of over the next couple of years because it uh, and they they you know we were talking before I think you started recording about um, like 40% increase in in stuff uh, I think at the conference they said it was about 35 is what they were seeing um, but they were using statistics like hey a 35% increase in drinking problems has caused a 50% increase in heart problems and uh, all these other stuff that that came from COVID and so the FAA I think realized that and they're going to try to start focusing more on like hey getting help uh, mental health wise and not letting that be the end of your career um so from a wife standpoint what do you got i don't know i just think like the stress and isolation of the career and the um the lifestyle for both ends is is probably crippling to people and so that's just the easiest coping um and so it, it is important to, you know, for wives to reach out and know that you're not alone in this. And um, my heart just like sinks every time I see a wife post about her husband um, dealing with that because it's probably more common than most. And, and I think some people just like to bury their head in the sand and um, 
think that it's normal and it's not. Um, mental health is so important. And I think, you know, this is aside from aviation, but I think motherhood can bring on a lot of moms and wives think like it's a coping mechanism for motherhood as well. And that's, it's not the case. <laughs> well, unfortunately, it's part of the big marketing machine. I mean, the mommy wine culture is out there big and bad. I mean, you can go into Target and there's little onesies that say, I cry, mommy drinks wine. I mean, it, yeah. you know, which, you know, my kids are 30 and 27 <laughs> and it was starting then, honestly. Um, I mean, I've shared on, in the program that I do, you know, I run dry January and sober October and some of those things. And, um, you know, I've shared my own like walk of shame with things that I did where I look back and I think, wow, what the heck, what were, you know, what were you thinking? What, what did you think you were role modeling? Why did you feel like that was going to make things better? You know, whatever, whatever it is, um, you know, smuggling wine in the, the, you know, water bottle into the football game. I mean, stuff like that, you know, Hey, I'm willing to own all of my own stuff with that, but I think it's definitely gotten worse. And I think a lot of it is the big marketing machine of the alcohol industry. Quite frankly, we're being, you know, when, what is that, that thing that says a a lie told enough times becomes the truth. And it's kind of that it's like, when you see the pictures of, you know, happy hour and this, it's all the happy, beautiful people and how fun it is and family gatherings and stuff. Nobody shows you puking in the toilet, right? There's, they don't show that on the marketing commercials or the next day. And, you know, just all yeah. of that. So right. I, and our goal, like our goal has never been to judge people who choose to drink casually, whatever, um, or even, you know, do your partying. Um, it's just what you accompany or what you um, justify to have that drink is the issue. Um, what you, you know, your stress levels and your, you know, lifestyle of your career, those kind of things um, should not be the, the reason. So I think that there's more of a mental and heart issue to repair and work on it. That so. Yeah, for sure. I, I think so. Definitely. It, it, it is. It's just, it's, it's doing that own personal work of asking some questions like, why am I doing this and what might be a better choice? And again, that's not to harsh or shame or judge anybody, but it truly alcohol is the one thing in our society that we have to justify when we say no to it or when we stop. I'm basically gluten-free. Nobody ever says, come on, (laughs) you know, or if you say, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm cutting back on the sugar. No, just have a piece of birthday cake or whatever. Everybody's like, Oh, okay. I was at a party the other night and it was the same thing. Like I'm doing sober October. Didn't want to drink. And the host who had had plenty to drink came up and said, do you have a drinking problem? I was like, no, I really don't. I'm just choosing to take a break. But then it was funny because it was somebody's birthday and they're passing out the birthday cake. And of course, being totally sober myself, which nobody else really was at this point, I'm watching all of this and all these people are saying no to the cake and nobody says what nobody says, oh, come on, you know, any of that. And I'm just thinking, yeah, it's really interesting. And again, I don't, I don't judge anybody. I've been that person. Oh, come on. Just have one glass with me. I've totally been that person. So I get it, you know? Um, And so I'm the same way. I don't come at it with any judgment. It's just curious to me. Um, And I know for me, a lot of it was just wanting to get rid of the mindless drinking, like 
just because I start dinner, why do I have to open a bottle of wine? I want to save it. If I'm going to drink, I want to save it for a special yeah. occasion when my I'm at an emotional high versus an emotional low, because that never fixes anything, you know, just things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the, uh, in the program of a lot of different programs, they talk about normies. So people that can drink without having to drink to excess are considered normies. They're normal, right? And I've always found that fascinating that the people that choose not to drink, like myself, uh, uh, anything, you know, drugs, alcohol, that stuff, it's all, it's mind-altering substances. It's something that changes your mindset and somehow that's considered, it's always blown my mind, that that's the normal. The people that can like change their mood but somehow not like take it to the extreme that I took it to. Those people are considered normal. And you're like, why are they the normies? Like, I think the people that like completely sub or, you know, uh, free of all this stuff should be the, the normies. But uh, in AA and stuff like that, they always talk about the, the normies, the ones that can drink. And, and it's like, it's weird to me. It's a weird concept that you can take drugs or drink or do whatever. You just didn't do it to the amount that I did. And you're the normal person. And it's like, it's, it's just strange to me. So. It is. And I, I think that's what we're doing here is be, beginning to shift that to where it's like, let's stop putting labels on all of it late. You know, I'm, I'm hate labels. They don't serve anything. They don't tell a story. Um, they just either, they, they basically serve to divide in, in some instance. And they keep, I think they keep too many people silent. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, you guys, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable and and willing to, you know, put a lot out there. Um, I know it's going to help a lot of people and I'll definitely have in the show notes, I'll have resources where people can find out more. Any closing thoughts from each one of you? What what would you like to send off to the as the final thought? Um, although our story might seem daunting (laughs) because it was such a timely thing. It's so worth it to get any type of help. It's your life. It's, you know, we have a restored marriage. Um, whereas like statistically we should not be married statistically, we should not be here together, um, in like a growing and prosperous marriage. And so like, it's worth it to do the hard work. Um, everyone has their own boundaries. Everyone has their own situation, but from, from where we sit now on the other side of it, like we are so very grateful for the work that was put into it. And on both, on both parties too, it's not just him. It's not just his addiction, addiction and recovery. It's mine too. Um, so it's, it's worth it. Yeah. And I think too, the, um, one of the things that we always try to portray too is that it um, none of this really has anything to do with us. Like this is, uh, it's a redemption story of how God came in and changed hearts and changed lives, uh, and it really doesn't have anything to do with us. We just happen to be the the messengers and the ones that got to experience it. Um, and so, uh, I have a two year old that's sitting here showing me all of his tigers, and it's like, like, yeah, that one's orange. Um, but anyways. Um, it really, you know, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with us. Um, uh, it was, like I said, it was just a, uh, we were, we were lucky enough to, to be some of the ones that actually, I wouldn't say succeeded, but have actually made it this far. Um, I think in our notes that we kind of sent you, um, I think we'd sent you some statistics, you know, it's like some like 3% of people that come out of rehab actually stay sober. I think most of the people I was in rehab with are either dead or have been to multiple different rehabs since. 
Um, it's a it's it's a sad story. Not a lot of people end up making it. So we've been fortunate that um, that God just changed our lives, and um, mm -hmm. and so yeah, um, it's it's worth it though. Like she said, uh, restored marriage, and um, you know I'm back to flying again, which. Um, one of the things I learned is that's that's not my identity. That's just my job now. Um, you know, it's not who I am. It's just it's just a job. Um, so if I were to lose my medical again, you know, we'd be fine. Um, whereas before, I I didn't think I would be fine without that. So um, yeah, um, there's there's information out there for uh, pilots. Uh, everything on the hymns, by the way, if you have pilots like uh, wives that are like, you need to listen to this. If any of the pilots are listening, everything's confidential. Uh, so if you call, for example, a hymns representative and just say, hey, I just want to talk about what's going on, none of that gets communicated to management or anything like that. It's all very, uh, very confidential and your job's not on the line by just calling and saying, hey, here's what's going on. What do you think? Uh, which I think a lot of people are afraid of is just, hey, if I make that one phone call, you know, they're going to send me to the chief pilot's office. And not the case at all. That, that you know, farthest thing from the truth. It's, it's all 100% confidential and um, there's there's hymns representatives out there that would be happy to talk to you and just tell you their story and how it helped them, um, and yeah, there's a there's actually a list on the hymns website of all the different companies and all the representatives inside that company and all their phone numbers are there and they're willing to take phone calls even if it's not you know even if you don't want to call your own company you know you're a Delta pilot but you're afraid to call a Delta hymn call an American hymns representative or call you know a frontier hymns representative and just have, talk to them because they're they're happy the reason their phone numbers are out there is they're happy to talk to you mm -hmm. so yeah. that's awesome that's such great information and I'll make sure again that that's in all the show notes okay all right thank you both so much and good luck with the rest of your career good luck at Delta and your training and all of that and we'll be watching you and cheering you on yeah, that's another thing too, is this, it's not a career holdback. So that was one of the big things I thought was once this all happened, oh, am I hireable at a, a legacy carrier? And I just got hired by Delta and the hymn stuff was, they, in the interview, we spent most of the time talking about that because they were like, oh, that's fascinating. They Talk were encouraged it. by it more than anything. Um, so. And so it was, it was nothing that, that held you back. So um, I think that's a lot of fear people have too. So uh, it doesn't hold you back and I'm proof of it. So yeah. Awesome. Hey, if you or someone you know is starting to question their own use of alcohol, are they using it to buffer, to numb out, to um, deal with anxiety and different emotions? Are they uh, over drinking, just mindless drinking? I offer a 31-day free challenge and throttle back the bottle. Just go to throttlebackthebottle.com. It's a free challenge, a judgment-free zone, but truly 31 days to evaluate your thoughts, get clear on your reasons why you drink, create a new self-image for how you want to step into your future, how you want to show up and put your best self forward with or without alcohol. Again, it's free. Throttlebackthebottle.com. What do you have to lose by just exploring your relationship with alcohol for 31 days? Do you ever find yourself on the struggle bus with relationships, career, or life in general? I'm a mindset and peak performance coach helping women rediscover their own sense of identity and purpose, avoid turbulence, and put their own oxygen mask on first. Together, we work to get you out of autopilot and create a better flight plan for life and relationship success. As a pilot wife for over 30 years, I've navigated thousands of miles and moments in aviation, mommyhood, business, and life in general. I would love to offer you a free call 
to see if I might be able to help you too. You can go to coach.pilotwifepodcast.com. And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. And of course, you'll find all of this at resources.pilotwifepodcast.com. Please take a moment to review and rate the show on whatever your favorite podcast app is. This helps the show get found by others who need what we have here. And you might win some fun swag for your troubles. I'll see you on the journey. And thanks for listening.